I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be able to share with you in looking to God's Word uh, together this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing uh, in our series through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But before we look at today's passage, I'd like to begin with an image from another place in Scripture in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 17, a passage sometimes called the High Priestly Prayer, We see Jesus, our high priest, our mediator, come before God the Father and pray on our behalf. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because there is so much depth and emotion uh, between Jesus and his Father uh, in this intimate moment before he goes to be arrested and crucified on our behalf. And at this point, he chooses to spend these moments, uh, these precious moments, praying for his disciples and for all future believers. Jesus, fully aware of the fact that within a matter of hours, his body will be broken to save us from our sins, prayed that his body would actually stay unified. But he was not talking about his physical body, He was praying for you and me. Listen to Jesus' words as he moves from praying for his disciples to all future believers, starting in verse 20. He said, I do not ask for these only, so his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. And then jumping to verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I wanted to start off with this image from uh, uh, before jumping to today's passage uh, because today's passage is centrally concerned with our unity as believers and how Christ's love is embodied in our relationships with one another. I think sometimes the word unity can feel kind of hollow or abstract like this ethereal uh, thing that we can't quite grasp. But John 17 reminds us of the concrete, dire importance of unity. Think of all the things Jesus could have prayed for. And he took time to pray that the church would be so miraculously united that it would put on display the nature of the loving bond between God the Father and God the Son. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, Paul is going to talk about what it means to be united as the church and therefore what it means to be the body of Christ. As followers of Christ, together we make up his body, and therefore we have an incredible calling to live in unity, reflecting the grace we've been given as we grow and build together in love. 
This is a tremendous calling to participate in the church. And Paul has a lot to say about it in today's passage. But before we get there, would you join me in prayer before we look to God's word together? Lord, we are humbled as we come before you today. It is a gift to be in community and to engage with you through your word, through singing, and through prayer. As we look now to your word, I pray that you would make it come alive to each one of us. That you would help us to feel our need for one another as we seek to live out uh, your calling as the body of Christ together. I pray that you would help us to grow as we hear from you and ultimately that you would be glorified in the church. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see in today's passage is together we are called to unity. If you have your Bibles with you or any way to access the Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And like I said, we're going to be covering all the way through verse 16 this morning, and there's a lot there, uh, but we're going to be kind of covering each section uh, one at a time to see how Paul's thoughts kind of progress throughout the whole passage. So first, we're just going to tackle the first six verses. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In this first section, Paul tells us that together we are called to unity. This unity is both something that is inherent to the reality of being a follower of Christ. We are already spiritually united with one another But Paul also says it's something we need to be eager to maintain. It's something towards which we also have to continually strive. Todd has mentioned uh, several times in the series so far that uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's only one imperative. The rest is explanation and celebration of everything that God has done in and through Christ for the church. When we get to chapter 4, though, there's a shift in Paul's speech. Suddenly, he's talking about how we are supposed to respond to everything that God has done. We see this right away as Paul begins. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's building on what he's already written, especially all the things he said at the end of chapter 3, which we covered last week. At the end of chapter 3, Paul prayed for the church to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts, and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. He closed out that section praying that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. And then he says, therefore, live out your calling. Now, calling is a heavy word sometimes in the church. We often wonder, you know, what has God called me to do? 
And we're usually thinking about our vocations, our jobs, uh, maybe that certain area of ministry that God has called us to participate in. But Paul is not speaking of our individual callings here to those various areas of life and ministry. He's speaking collectively to the body of the church. He's talking about the singular calling to which all of us, the collective church, have been called, which is our calling to follow Jesus, our first calling. We are to live in a way that is worthy of that calling, which he explains in the next two verses. We are to live, we are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul essentially, in those verses, gives us a list of ways of how we are to walk as we follow Jesus with our lives. Ultimately, these characteristics, uh, these character traits, and these actions that he gives us here, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So if we want to know how to live them out, we can look at his example first. It's the ultimate example of how to live uh, out our calling. But because of the communal focus of this passage, uh, I want to take a minute to touch on each of these elements of this short list that Paul gives us. And with each characteristic and action, I want to encourage you to think about someone you know, a fellow believer who embodies that specific characteristic well. If you're taking notes, you can maybe write down the characteristic we're talking about and then write the person's name next to it. And let their example be a way of pointing you to how Jesus is inviting you to live out your calling. Now let's look at the characteristics of living out our calling to follow Jesus. First, Paul says we are to walk in humility. Paul told the church to aspire to humility at a time when being called humble would have felt kind of like an insult. It was like saying, live out your calling by being a nobody. But the gospel turns our view of success upside down and reminds us that the way to follow our God is to become like a lowly servant. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant humbling himself even to the point of dying on a cross for those he loves, a shameful death. John Stott said that humility is nothing but the truth. Humility is a synonym for honesty, not hypocrisy. It is not an artificial pretense about myself, but an accurate assessment of myself. The better we understand ourselves, the ways in which we desperately need God, as well as the good, the ways that God has blessed us and is gifting us to work in the world, the better we know ourselves truly, the better equipped we are to serve in his kingdom. Who do you know who lives humbly, honestly embracing their faults and their gifts to serve Christ well? Let their example point you to the humility of Christ. Next, Paul says we are to walk in gentleness. And gentleness is closely related to humility. In fact, when Jesus describes his heart, the state of his heart, 
when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 11. He uses both of those words to describe it. He is gentle and humble in heart. At a time when it can be easy to only hear the loudest voices in our society, who do you know who embodies the gentleness of Christ? Who do you know who has a welcoming heart, who is able to respond gently and not harshly when faced with difficulties? Let their example point you to the gentleness of Christ. We are also to walk with patience. We live in an age of instant gratification and constant busyness. If you don't believe me, the next time you're at the grocery store, maybe find the longest checkout line aisle and wait there and don't look at your phone at all until you get to the front. But patience is not just about momentary delays. Although those can certainly reveal the state of our impatient hearts, like me when I'm at the checkout line, apparently. Who have you seen endure difficult periods of life with strength and endurance, not letting their character falter because of the things happening to or around them? Let their example point you to the patience of Christ. We are also to bear with one another in love. This phrase uh, could just as easily be translated as putting up with one another in love. I love how one commentary explains what this means. They said, to bear with one another is to put up with another's faults and idiosyncrasies knowing that we have our own. It is out of love that we embrace one another in the church, and this love originates in Christ. Think of how perfectly Christ knows each one of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he continually chooses to welcome us in. It's that same radical love that pushes each of us to bear with one another, even as we recognize the difficulties and messiness that comes along with relationships in a fallen world. Instead of considering someone that embodies this characteristic, I actually want to encourage you to consider a fellow believer whom you have a difficult time enduring in love. Maybe don't write their name down if you're taking notes. As you think about that person, ask God to soften your heart as you consider that brother or sister so that your example of loving them would point them to the enduring love of Christ. Finally, Paul closes out this opening exhortation by saying that we are to live out our calling through being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We could spend all morning on just this phrase, I think, but I'll keep it brief because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's take a second to just be honest when we look at the church in America today, just the wider church. Would your first inclination be to describe the church as eager to maintain unity? Looking at the broad picture of the church, it certainly feels like we are quicker to divide than we are to maintain unity. We are much quicker to find reasons to disagree and label someone else as in a different camp than us, to label them as an outsider. 
by and large, than we are to recognize believers from other denominations or churches as brothers and sisters of fellow followers of our Savior. And the thing is, even as I say that, my own sinful heart gets pumped up and says things like, yeah, yeah, those other people are so quick to divide. Those other people are so quick to judge. I'm taking seminary classes online right now, and a few weeks ago, uh, during a quick break, uh, during a Zoom call uh, for one of these classes, someone made a comment uh, that rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm going to be as obscure as I can in how I say this. This person was essentially making a comment to see if other people on the call were in agreement with them about a certain political topic. That's obscure enough, right? I was very much not in agreement with the people who responded positively to this person. And very quickly, you know, on Zoom, you can see everyone's face all at once. I made a mental note of everyone who participated in that brief moment of political partisanship. Suddenly, people whom I didn't actually know at all were people who were on the other side of a divide from me. And then class started back up again, and we were off talking about the Old Testament and how to study Scripture better. And I'm ashamed to say that it wasn't until nearly the end of that class period that I remembered what I would be preaching on in a few weeks and how I had failed to live it out in my heart. Everyone in that class was there to learn how to serve Christ through studying his word. And these people are serious. You don't get through two semesters of Hebrew on a whim. Yet a few comments that disagreed with how I view this finite nation put a dividing wall in my mind between myself and several people, despite the fact that we are bound together by our citizenship to an eternal kingdom. We need to be eager to maintain unity. Now, as I'm saying this, make no mistake, to be united in Christ does not mean that there are never reasons to divide. Sometimes following Christ necessitates ending a relationship or leaving an unhealthy situation. Following Jesus means being convicted about the concerns of his heart, and sometimes speaking up for those concerns will bring divisions when there's disagreements. But with that being the reality that we live within, it matters whether we approach others with an eagerness to maintain unity or if we are eager to put up divisions. And Paul is clear about which one Christ embodies and invites us to follow. One day we will be perfectly united when Christ makes all things new, but today we need to strive to live out that unity. We need to be eager to love and reach across divisions rather than being eager to put up walls or draw lines in the sand. Paul says that we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This builds off of what Paul has already said earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, where he explained that Jesus has broken the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and established peace, making us one new person in place of the two. One 
new person. We are one body. We are united and at peace because Christ himself establishes peace between us. As we move on and look at verses 4 through 6, Paul provides evidence for the unity we are called to embody together. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17. He prayed that all believers would be what? One. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are perfectly one. Paul says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The pattern of the church is unity. We are members of one body. We have received one spirit. We have one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God. I love these verses. They're so simple and so beautiful in what they communicate. Just think about how much you and I share with so many people. Think about the millions of people around the world just today, just this Sunday, worshiping Jesus. Think of the countless generations of believers whom we are united with because of what Christ has done for each of us. Think of all the things that make us different, our looks, the color of our skin, our languages, the time periods into which we were born, the countries we call home. And yet, we all have one hope. We're united by one spirit. We are one body. Being the body of Christ means we are united not just to one another here in the Bridge Church, but we are part of this vast cosmic reality, which is the capital C Church. And as the church, together, we are called to unity. Moving on, we see that together we have also received grace. Let's read the next several verses together, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. When we looked at the first six verses of chapter 4, we saw a call for miraculous unity in the church. Those verses should put to rest any uh, idea that we can go about the Christian life uh, on our own. But verses 7 through 10 remind us, amidst that reality, even though that is true, every individual believer has been gifted by our gracious Savior. Grace was given to each one of us, Paul says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it's important to touch on the word grace here and how Paul is using it. When we see the word grace, we tend to probably think first of the saving grace that we receive in faith. We read about this in Ephesians 2. Uh, Mark preached on this several weeks ago. By grace, we have been saved through faith. 
But Paul also sometimes uses grace to speak of the ways in which God has empowered someone to serve within his kingdom. In Romans 12, verse 6, for example, when describing the different members of the body, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul also said that he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This is grace that is given with a purpose. We see this more clearly as we move on, but first we need to deal with the difficulty of verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, Paul references a passage from Psalm 68 which uses imagery of a victor returning from battle. The psalm also was sometimes interpreted by ancient Jewish interpreters as referring to Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. But however it was interpreted prior to Paul's writing, Paul uses it here to explain that Christ's incredible descent to the earth and his lowly death, as well as his resurrection and ascension to the heights of heaven, are inherently connected with his gracious bestowing of gifts on the church. In verses 9 and 10, Paul explains the psalm as pointing to what Christ has already accomplished and what he has given to us. Christ humbly descended, even to the point of death, so that when he ascended, like a victorious king bestowing the spoils won in battle to his people, Christ gave gifts to every one of us, so that he would, as Paul puts it, fill all things. The point of this passage, uh, this section in the middle of this passage, is that Jesus is the true victorious king who descended and ascended so that by gifting the church in a great variety of ways, as many ways as there are people, his glory and his presence would be manifested throughout all creation. We are true recipients of grace, both because we have been saved from sin and death and because Christ sent his son to empower us and gift us for the purpose of glorifying him and building up his body, the church. This moves us right into the final section of this passage, verses 11 through 16, in which we see that together we grow and build in love. Let's read this final section together. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In this final section, Paul shows us what Christ's gifts to the church include, as well as the purpose of those gifts. First, we see that Christ gave not only grace to his people to serve in a great variety of ways, but he also gave the gift of people specifically given the task of leading. Paul says that Christ gave the church apostles like Paul and the others, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and these are all connected to the imagery of Christ's gracious giving in the previous section. These leaders were gifted to the church for two clear purposes, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. I think sometimes we hear the word ministry and we assume that's the job of the people maybe that we just listed. That the uh, shepherds, which is where we get the word for pastor, the shepherds and teachers, uh, they're the ones that are doing the work of ministry, right? But this verse makes it clear that we are all called to ministry. There are some whom God may call to serve the body as uh, shepherds, teachers, evangelists, prophets, but they do so in order that all of us would be equipped for ministry. And in verse 13, we see that all of this is building towards the church attaining several things that are all interrelated. This is what it's building towards. The unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, Mature manhood, more on that in a second, the fullness of Christ. What has all of this been building towards? Paul says we must grow up in our faith together. We are united, but we work towards unity. It is only through our eagerness to maintain that unity that we will grow up in our faith together. The bottom line is that we need each other. We need each other so that we can grow up into the fullness of Christ, which is tied to that strange phrase I mentioned a minute ago. We're working towards mature manhood. What is Paul talking about there? Well, Paul has already referred to the church, the collective church, as the body of Christ, both in this passage and several other places uh, in his letters. He is working with that imagery again here saying basically, just as a child must grow up to become a mature adult, so too must all of us as a collective body grow towards maturity. And until we recognize that we can't grow to maturity apart from each other, we won't achieve it. It is only together that we will be able to grow up to maturity and the fullness of the person that the church is supposed to embody, that of Jesus Christ. We need each other to do that. Only together can we withstand the winds and the waves we see in verse 14. What we don't want to be, according to this passage, is without an anchor. We need to be deeply 
rooted. We need a firm foundation and a community dedicated to truth so that when we are faced with false doctrines and lies, we won't be knocked over by them. In an age when you can go down just about any rabbit trail online to discover some new hidden truth or choose whatever truth you would like to believe through whatever media you consume, each one of us has the potential to step into all sorts of wind and waves of various doctrines and beliefs. You can develop a whole theology based around a YouTube channel that talks about Christianity, but that's not the sort of church community that we are called to pursue in this passage. Instead, we need to grow up together, building one another up in love as we seek to be a people who collectively look like Christ. That's where all of this is headed. We read in verses 15 through 16, rather, so in contrast to being blown about by winds and waves of false doctrines and lies, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the head of the church, and he is the one whom the church is to embody, to grow towards. And because we are all parts of that body who've been gifted by Christ with a grace to serve others, when each one of us is working towards that unity that we've been called to, that's when we see what the church is meant to be, a body that grows and builds itself up in love. Remember that image of Jesus praying for the church before his arrest? Part of his prayer was that the love with which the Father had loved him would be in those who believed in him and embraced the gospel. So that begs the question, what kind of love exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? It's a love that embraces the other. There is a perfect unity and diversity in God. He is three persons in one. And that unity and diversity is exactly what we have been invited into in Christ. Can you imagine how Christ would be glorified in the church if we really did this? To be fully known and loved by one another, to be able to embrace one another beyond superficiality, so that we really see one another not as just a neighbor or a friend, but as a brother or sister in the family of God as our siblings. The love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is also a self-giving love. It's a love that looks to serve, to submit to one another, and to build the other up. In a time when there is so much that divides us, what would it look like for you to grow and build in love today? I pray that the Holy Spirit stirs something in your heart today with that question. As I've looked at this passage and prepared to uh, share with you uh, this morning about it, God has challenged me to shut down thoughts of judgment on others who think differently than me, especially in the body of Christ. And I have by no means arrived. But I'm thankful for this passage which reminds me that if I have room to grow, 
Am I the only one who has room to grow in this regard? If I have room to grow, then if I am in the church, I'm exactly in the right place. That's what being the body of Christ is. Knowing that we are miraculously united to each other, living out our calling by the grace we've received, and working towards maintaining unity as we grow and build one another up in love. May that be true of us here at the Bridge Church. And may Christ be glorified as we grow and build always together. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of living in community. Lord, it is not always easy, and we acknowledge that. And we pray that you would be seen in our midst because we know we can't pursue unity apart from you. We need you at work in our midst to help us to grow towards that fullness of Christ, that image that we see in this passage. We need you to help us grow up in our faith and we need you to remind us to pursue one another uh, in love as we do that. Lord, I pray that that would be true of our community here and Lord, that you would be glorified uh, in this church and all the churches around the world. Lord, we love you, we look to you in all these things. It's in your name we pray.